8.15, and it almost seems surreal that US President Donald Trump wrote in a letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that it's his great honour to accept an invitation to deliver this year's State of the Union speech next Tuesday in the House chamber, which was delayed for a week amid the country's record-breaking 35-day government shutdown. And that may be over for now, with Trump coming away empty-handed, but he stressed in his letter that we have a great story to tell and yet great goals to achieve. For further discussion on the rhetoric and reality, let's welcome Dr. Vanessa Beasley from the Department of Communication Studies at Vanderbilt University. Good morning. Good morning, Alex. How are you? Well, good. And thank you for joining us. I'm just trying to sort of make uh, sense of this latest development, because certainly Nancy Pelosi was not Donald Trump's best friend when they were trying to find an end to that government shutdown. And indeed, the shutdown concluded with Trump himself suggesting that it was only a temporary reprieve and and his push for the wall would continue. So what is this about? Is this just a protocol, the, 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 the little conversation through words that they're having? Well, it's really an interesting moment because it's the intersection of a very important historical ritual uh, that's part of the United States Constitution, actually, that from time to time the Congress uh, wants to hear. That's the language in the Constitution. It doesn't even say every year. It just says from time to time the Congress should hear from the President about the State of the Union. And that implies a need for us to respect the relationship between those two branches of government. Since the advent of television and radio, however, it's increasingly become a media spectacle. So instead of uh, having a visual message of two parties getting along together and the president updating Congress on the state of things, it's increasingly become this forum for looking to see who's standing up, who's sitting down, who's cheering, who's booing, and sort of some antagonism has been built in. That part's not new. We certainly would expect some antagonism because it'll be addressed to the 116th Congress, a Democratic-held house. And it is his second address. What do you expect him to say? Well, he's definitely going to, as he said himself, tell a story. Uh, Ever since Ronald Reagan, presidents have become increasingly savvy about the fact that if you're doing a State of the Union on television, you're, you're doing the traditional need in this speech to talk about your policy. But public policy is really boring sometimes. So what you have to do to make it come up to life is tell stories, tell stories about the people it impacts. So to the extent that I think we can safely predict that Trump wants to tell the story of the need for the wall, I would imagine that he would use this television showcase to tell, frankly, a scary story, as he sees it, about the harms that have been done uh, by the people he calls illegal immigrants, right, and have some families um, who he'll say, I'm sure he'll have families in the audience with the First Lady, which is another tradition that Reagan started, that the cameras can go to and say, look at these people who have been harmed by the fact that we don't have a wall, therefore I'm going to make a case for the wall. Yeah, of course the shutdown ended without any money being handed to President Trump for his border wall. And it certainly seems rather interesting that the cost of the shutdown was estimated at above how much it would have costed for the wall in the first place. What do you see playing out there? Do you think, for example, that we might just see the resumption of the shutdown in three weeks or less than three weeks now? I think that the Trump's calling card is his unpredictability, right? So 
I think that it's impossible to say what he'll do. He's forecast on February 15th if he doesn't have what he wants after these three weeks have passed the negotiating period they agreed upon. Um, he's implied that he would use um, sort of his most important option as, as chief executive, and that's his power to declare a national emergency. Um, now, the range of what a president can do if he does make that declaration is pretty big, but I think that one of the things that he has a history of as a business person is uh, thinking of himself as a skillful negotiator. So to the extent that he's already said that's what he's prepared to do if the negotiation fails, it creates some constraints, right, on both sides. For the Democrats, um, you know, it's hard to say, as you noticed, um, with the election of the new House in particular, it's hard to say that they have um, a lot to lose because if they can't find a negotiated settlement in three weeks and he declares a state of emergency, in some ways that becomes another um, public relations disaster for the Republican Party that can't seem to control Trump, right? That's a really drastic thing for him to do. On the other hand, you could could argue that everybody loses because nobody in the United States wants to go back, um, nobody I know at least, wants to go back to the state we were in with, um, you know, government workers not being paid. So President Trump said we have a great story to tell and yet great goals to achieve, as I mentioned at the outset. It doesn't look wonderful, does it, for the uh, people who suffered because of this shutdown, this idea of a great story to tell. How damaging has the shutdown been for President Trump himself politically? Uh, You've already made clear the Republican Party would not be in favour of another shutdown generally. Yeah, there's pretty good evidence that the, you know, we talked you talked earlier about the economic cost of the shutdown and that's absolutely true. But there's also pretty good evidence that it cost him um some approval ratings within his base. And this is I would say it's the first time we could make a case that they've dramatically gone down. I was reading statistics uh earlier this week about particularly the cost for women in his base and how his approval ratings have gone down. So I think that, you know, in a sense, given the frame you just offered, this is also a moment for competing stories, right? Which story are you going to tell? Are you going to tell the story that people Trump says he's trying to protect? Or are you going to listen to the stories of people, including some in his own base, who said, hey, I almost went for a month without being able to feed my family, right? Um, it's, a really, it's a moment where you're going to hear this battle for whose pain was worse in that time. Do you, do you feel that no matter what you thought about his election initially, I don't know whether you expected him, him to become president in the first place, but do you feel that this will cost him re-election? That's a really difficult question um, because it depends on so many things that are outside of just the realm of public opinion, including all sorts of things like what happens with voter turnout, but also what happens with um, you know state laws about who can vote and where can they vote and all those sorts of things. So you know, to the extent that, for example, gerrymandering in the United States, which is the way voting districts are have been drawn recently, to the extent that there's pretty good evidence that that privileges Republican candidates, that's why it's hard to make this calculus. You know, on one hand, is this does this have the potential to be enough of a public opinion disaster to make Republicans themselves start talking about seating some other candidates? Yes, and that's already happened. On the other hand, there's still structural reasons with the way U.S. Uh, presidential elections work to, to, you know, become a little concerned perhaps about the fact that, you know, is there, is it possible there could be enough of a public relations disaster to put his, um, to put his reelection in jeopardy? And frankly, academics are arguing about this right now. No one thinks they know the answer, but there's a lot of, there's some evidence on both sides. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely sense wariness. As, as you've suggested, to make too many bold predictions because of the surprises we've already seen around the world. But when President Trump said he has a very powerful alternative up his sleeve, that was in a speech last Friday, 
What do you think he meant by that? As a communications expert, do you think that was just some sort of ploy, like the way he has warned North Korea of the consequences in rather vague terms of what would happen if if, if it was to push him? Um, or, or do you think he genuinely has something, another card to play? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's both and. I think it is part of what we know of his rhetorical pattern as president to make uh, more or less, you know, threatening statements, either in specific or in broad terms, right, that we've seen, as you mentioned, we've seen him do that before in more than one setting, and then we've also seen those threats not come to fruition. Um, so that's part of a pattern. And then on the other hand, you know, he does have, as chief executive, he does have the power to declare um, a state of emergency, and that also opens up other powers that he could um, that he could uh, unleash, if you want to use that word, if he did that. So there is an actual card that he can play, and the degree of power that Congress would have to stop him is going to be different depending on which constitutional um, lawyer you speak to. But, I mean, there is a real thing. There is a real threat there. But we've been talking this morning about Venezuela's crisis, politically speaking. Could it even trigger a political crisis in the U.S. if he was to go ahead, declare a state of emergency, doesn't have as much support within his base as he hoped, and obviously has a lot of opposition, plus a democratic-held house. Could we see an unprecedented situation unfold there? Yes, we could. And then that, that unprecedented situation, I think, could also lead to some unprecedented action within the branch of uh, government in the United States we haven't talked about, and that's the judiciary. And the reason I think they might be put into action if he did declare a state of emergency is because uh, the... Judiciary is filled on every level is filled with lots of people who I would say consider themselves institutionalists, which is you respect the power of various institutions regardless of the politics or the people who are in power at the moment. And for a president to declare a state of emergency uh, when he has in fact forecast in you know, three weeks before, if that's what he does, that he might do it, sort of defies the logic of what an actual emergency is, right? <laughs> that makes yeah, sense that yeah. you can predict it three weeks out. So my, you know, again, as you say, it's, it's dangerous these days to make predictions, but I think it would be alarming to the judiciary, and I think you'd see that third branch of government um, kick in in a perhaps unprecedented way, and people would start talking about, um, you know, the, all the full range of the powers the Constitution gives uh, that branch as well. Dr. Beasley, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Well, it's dangerous to call a state of emergency when you yourself are the emergency. But then again, if you're an enemy of Trump, maybe that's exactly what you want to happen. Powder Sharp 1013 for 51 per message if you want to get involved.